This week, Harvard University professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. talks about his work on the documentary Reconstruction, America After the Civil War. The PBS series looks at changes that occurred in the 12 years after the Civil War, including giving formerly enslaved men the right to vote. So I call the summer of 1867 the first freedom summer. Eighty percent, Joe, 80 percent of all eligible black men registered to vote. Think of that. We don't have 80 percent anybody registered to vote (laughs) today. The class is part of a series of lectures at the Citadel. More in a moment. Uh, Welcome to our class, The Why and the How, The Making of the International African American Museum. I'm Professor Kerry Taylor. I teach history here at the Citadel, and I assist uh, Mayor Riley with this spring course. Uh, Before I turn it over to my colleague, Mayor Riley, to uh, introduce our very special guests, uh, I just wanted to let you know that following remarks from Professor Henry Louis Gates, and uh, some conversation between Professor Gates and Mayor Riley. We'll have time for a few questions uh, from our students. Uh, Again, welcome all. Thank you for joining us, Uh, Mayor Riley. Thank you very much, uh, Gary. Uh, Professor Gates, ladies and gentlemen, Henry Louis Skip Gates is truly one of a kind. He is joyful. A witty comment is never far away. He is kind and he is generous. Whenever I've called or emailed him, usually about the International African American Museum, a response is instantaneous as if he has nothing else to do. And of course he does. He's the Alphonse Fletcher University Professor and Director of the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research at Harvard University. He is an Emmy award-winning filmmaker literary scholar, journalist, cultural critic, and institutional institution builder who has authored or co-authored 25 books and created 23 documentary films, all of which have undoubtedly helped open America's eyes, hearts, and minds to our country's previously unknown history. He has inspired and empowered African-Americans to explore their family histories through genealogy and science. He serves on a wide array of boards, including the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. He has received 55 honorary degrees, awards too numerous to name, and recognition of his countless contributions to our country. And he proudly serves on the selection committee for the Reverend Clemente Pinckney Scholars Program, which promotes access to higher education for African-American students in South Carolina by awarding scholarships and providing consistent mentoring and professional training to ensure their success during and after college. And this scholarship program was a brainchild of Henry Lewis Skip Gates. Skip, welcome. It's an an honor and privilege to have you with us today. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Professor Mayor, for that kind introduction. I'd like to thank everybody for gathering on a lovely day. I don't know what the weather is down there, but it's beautiful here in Harvard Square in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I am welcoming you to my kitchen. Um, And my wife said, don't be messing up her kitchen 
with no Joe Riley and talking for too long. So I'm going to be on till 3.30. This is um, a painting by Jonathan Green, who's from North Carolina, um, behind me, because uh, Mayor Riley wanted to know where that came from. So I do all my Zoom uh, meetings right here in the kitchen. This is where I write all day. Joe asked, how come I answered emails so quickly? Um, it, because I'm obsessive. <laughs> compulsive <laughs> and I can't stand having unanswered emails so I go back and forth between writing in this space and when I get an email I answer it and it's a trick I learned Joe but more quickly you answer an email the shorter your answer can be <laughs> the longer you wait you have that guilt factor right and so you have to say uh, you have to make up some fib and say oh yeah I've been thinking about your thing and blah 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 but if you answer right away, you just say, right, got it, good, get back to you, good, hope you're well, see you, bye, and then delete. <laughs> I made a film about Reconstruction um, for two reasons. One, because uh, until recently, and in part thanks to our um, PBS series, nobody ever talked about Reconstruction. I don't know about you guys, but I didn't study Reconstruction um, at all. In school, I mean, we just skipped from Lee's surrender at Appomattox to the Civil Rights Movement. <laughs> and, you know, students could reasonably ask, if Lincoln freed the slaves, why did you need a Civil Rights Movement? And everybody forgets what happened in between. Um, it's also, I made it as a mirror for the moment that we were going through, which is, in a nutshell, um, most simply put, what is Reconstruction? 12 years of maximum black freedom followed by an alt-right rollback. Um, does that sound familiar? Eight years of, of our first black president followed by what? The rise of white supremacy and an alt-right rollback. Um, nobody could believe when Barack was elected the first time and then re-elected that a president would be elected no matter what your politics um, who at a minimum manipulated the tropes of white supremacy in order to um, gain and to attempt to maintain his support. And I think I mentioned this to Joe once. Uh, I, did, I first realized the backlash against having a black family in the White House when I was filming a previous series uh, and I was at the Jim Crow Museum, which is at Ferris State University, F-E-R-R-I-S, Ferris State University in Michigan. And Obama's, Obama had been in the White House for a couple of years. And already in that museum, they had a space dedicated to racist images of Barack Obama. And I'm not talking about just with big lips or, you know, like the standard tropes of black inferiority, what we call sambo art. I mean, really nasty, uh, vulgar, obscene images, toys and dolls and all horrible. I mean, I was shocked and I'm hard to, <laughs> I'm hard to shock. <laughs> I live with one of the things I study is the image of the black in um, Western art. And that's good and bad. And most if, numerically, the bad images far outnumber the good. All those caricatures that we were able, you could see briefly in that video clip, which began to proliferate in the 1890s. 
Why the 1890s? Two reasons. One's technological. Chromolithography becomes um, very, very cheap in the 1890s. So you could distribute four color images for almost nothing. Whereas though chromolithography was invented much earlier in the 19th century, it was very expensive. So who better to uh, uh, represent using chromolithography than black people, right? Black skin, white eyes, big red lips. You know, it was made for it. If you look at the images of the Jonathan Green behind me, look at the vibrant red, look at the black, look at the white, uh, look at the green. I mean, there were three or four images of three or four colors used over and over and over again in tens of thousands of these racist images of black people. So when I left Ferris State University that day, I thought, there's something happening here. It's like the old song from the 60s, something happening here and what it is ain't exactly clear. Then all of that literature about this is the end of racism, Obama is the second Abraham Lincoln, he's going to be on Mount Rushmore, blah, blah, blah. There were a whole lot of people who were just pissed off, pardon my French, Mr. Mayor, about having a black family in the White House. And it went even deeper than that. And you saw that the most counterintuitive, uh, counterintuitive unlikely thing happened, which was Donald Trump succeeding um, Barack Obama in the White House, in part because of the alt-right rollback to um, the embodiment, of, but also the challenges that a black person in the White House represented. So it was reconstruction redux. It was the rollback to reconstruction redux. So I decided that I was going to change the sequence of my films at PBS and do the first major treatment of reconstruction. Um, what is reconstruction? Well, it's America's second founding. It's, uh, um, remember Lincoln's new birth of freedom. It is past the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The 13th ratified on December 6, 1865. The 13th Amendment, as you know from my friend Ava DuVernay's brilliant documentary, it was the 13th Amendment that ended slavery. It was not Emancipation Proclamation. There, in 1860, there were 3.9 million enslaved African Americans. Maybe, uh, most generously, 500,000 gained their freedom through the Emancipation Proclamation. Because remember, to be free, you had to be, it only applied to the Confederate states. And then an enslaved person had to get behind Union lines in order to, quote unquote, be free. Um, so maybe scholars disagree about all these numbers. And nobody was counting heads, but let's say 500,000. Okay, that leaves 3.4 million enslaved people who weren't freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. They were only freed by the ratification of the 13th. Then 1865, three years later, is the ratification of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment uh, established birthright citizenship, um, the Equal Protection um, Clause, and uh, due process under the law. And it's been used over and over again. It's the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, for, um, sorry, that's my doorbell. And I can't get an answer that. <laughs> so Amazon was just going to have to wait. <laughs> um, and um, you ever wonder why America has birthright citizenship? It's because they couldn't figure out how to make enslaved people citizens. Because the Dred Scott decision in 1857 under um, the uh, Chief Justice Roger Taney, 
said that the founders never had black people in mind when they were thinking about citizens. I, I happen to think that's right, but scholars disagree. But but Roger Taney thought that that was true, and that was the Dred Scott decision, which said that black people never were and, and are not and never will be citizens, even if they are free. Now, if you're wondering how many black people at any given time are free, you could say maybe 10% of the total black community, 10 to 12%. Uh, was free. Um, so in 1860, there are 3.9 million African Americans. There are 488,000 uh, free black people. And here's the surprise. 262,000 of those free people lived in the slave states. In other words, there were more free black people living in the slave states than there were in the North, which was ostensibly free. But uh, Black people, even free black men in the North, could not vote except in five of the six New England states, not in Connecticut. In all the other five, uh, uh, in all other five of the six New England states, but Connecticut, and in the state of New York, if you satisfy a $250 property requirement, which is pretty tough, pretty tough thing to do. So free black men <laughs> in, the, in the North didn't get the right to vote until the ratification of the 15th Amendment, which is 1870. However, this is the biggest surprise joke for me, maybe. One of the two or three biggest surprises for me making the series was that black men in the former Confederacy in 10 of the 11 Confederate states, because Tennessee had gone back, to the Union, got the right to vote in the summer of 1867, three years before my free black ancestors. I descend from three sets of free black fourth grade grandparents who lived in um, Virginia, um, ironically, 30 miles from where I was born. <laughs> and um, two sets on my mother's side, one set on my father's side. And um, two sets were free by the American Revolution. In fact, one of my fourth grade grandfathers, a man named John Redmond, and he fought the American Revolution because of him. He was a free black man. I'm a member. My brother's an oral surgeon. My brother and I are members of Sons of the American Revolution, all because of John Redmond. You could Google him. I wrote an essay about him for the New York Times. Um, they, in 1863, that part of Virginia seceded and became West Virginia on June 20th, 1863. But despite that fact, they could not vote, even though they were free in the free state of West Virginia in the middle of the Civil War. They didn't get the right to vote until 1870 because of the 15th Amendment. But throughout 10 of those 11 Confederate states, all black men got the right to vote and because of the Reconstruction Amendment, um, one of the four Reconstruction Amendments. So I call the summer of 1867 the first freedom summer. 80%, Joe, 80% of all eligible black men registered to vote. Think of that. We don't have 80% anybody registered to vote <laughs> today. 80% of them. And these men were largely illiterate because enslaved people um, were barred from learning to read and write by law. 
Nevertheless, they registered to vote. And in the general election of 1868, guess what? They actually voted. They cast their ballots. 500,000 men cast their ballots for Ulysses S. Grant in 1868. Ulysses S. Grant won the uh, Electoral College overwhelmingly, but he only won the popular vote by just over 300,000 votes. So in effect, black men had elected a president. And in South Carolina, that was ground zero for black reconstruction and black power. South Carolina had a majority in the House of Representatives, the Speaker of the House, the Treasurer. I mean, it was just as black as black could get. Um, and it, that scared the bejesus out of not only the former Confederates, <laughs> also white liberal people in the North. Ladies and gentlemen, nobody thought all these black people were going to vote. Now, South Carolina, Mississippi, and Louisiana were majority black states. Even in the 18th century, South Carolina had so many black people. It was The nickname was Negro country. So South Carolina, Mississippi, and Louisiana were majority black states. Georgia, Alabama, Florida were in the 40s, almost majority black states. That was like a mini black republic. And it was much too... Um, much too powerful and potentially powerful to allow that to stand. So something had to be done about it. So simultaneous with the fact that between um, 1870 and 1877, 16 black men are elected to Congress, two senators, you know, senators were appointed, but 16 black men go to Congress, 14 to the House, including Richard Harvey Kane who was the man who resurrected Mother Emanuel, and uh, two went to the um, United States Senate. Despite this, and during Reconstruction, 2,000 black men are elected or appointed to state or local office, according to Eric Foner. 2,000. Despite those great gains, there was a constant rollback, a constant resistance to Reconstruction. Between 1866 in 1876, there were eight major massacres of black people, eight massive lynchings. And I'm, I, I, I like to say the list um, because it's just so horrendous. Memphis, New Orleans, Camilla, Meridian, Colfax, Coshada, Vicksburg, and Hamburg. They were lynchings in that 10-year period, lynchings, violence, rape intimidation and fraud. Ku Klux Klan in its first iteration, remember I said the 13th Amendment was ratified in December 1865? The Klan was born <laughs> in December 1865 too. So there's these parallel discourses, a thesis and an antithesis, antithesis simultaneously during the whole period of Reconstruction. It wasn't like it was bliss and then rolled back. There was resistance at every moment to Black uh, political power. And it was the ballot that was the bone of contention. Um, also, you know, cotton still had to be planted. Cotton remains the leading export in the United States through the 1930s. Somebody's got to plant it. Somebody's got to harvest it. They've taken away the source of free labor. So what do they do? Um, substitute it with a neo-slavery sharecropping, peonage, vagrancy laws that allowed idle black men to be picked up off the street and put on the chain gang. Um, then there was the great, the first great depression was, is now called the panic 
1873. It was called the Great Depression until 1929, <laughs> when the real Great Depression hit and they changed the name. And people, even in the North, were saying, can we still afford Reconstruction? Because the right to vote was guaranteed by federal troops located in those five, the 10 Confederate states um, that we've been talking about were divided up into five military districts and federal troops protected the right to vote for black men. And then a conservative Supreme Court, many of the justices appointed by Abraham Lincoln, starting in uh, the U.S. versus Crookshank in 1876, that said the 14th Amendment is only about state action, not private action or private uh, behavior. And then the famous civil rights cases of 1883 struck down the Civil Rights Act of 1875. Black people had rights in 1875 that it would take 100 years almost to get back. I mean, it was not until the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that these black rights guaranteed by the three constitutional amendments and the Civil Rights Act of 1875 would be restored. The Supreme Court declared the Civil Rights Act of 1875 unconstitutional. All right. And then we all know Pledge of E. Ferguson in 1896 declared separate but equal as the law of the land. But more insidiously, so if, if these black men have the right to vote and you can't kill them, oh, all of them, how do you, how do you, how do you inscribe pro, their prohibition um, if the right to vote is sanctified by the 15th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States? Well, you can't repeal it very easily. We know you, they repealed prohibition. But nobody was trying to repeal the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. Some genius came up with the nefarious genius with the idea that you could circumvent. So starting in 1890 with the Mississippi Plan, every uh, southern state rewrote their state constitution. And they did it for one reason. And I'm going to quote. I'm not going to say the N-word, but I'm going to refer to it. This is from future Governor Mississippi Governor James Kimball Vardaman, who was a stone-cold racist, if ever there was one, when he was talking about why they were um, rewriting the Constitution in Mississippi in 1890. And they remember, this instituted poll taxes, uh, literacy tests. Um, he said, quote, there's no use to equivo- equivocate or lie about the matter. Mississippi's Constitution Convention was held for no other purpose than to eliminate the N-word from politics. Not the ignorant, but the N-word. That's, and remember, Mississippi had been the first state to send a black man to, to Congress in the Senate. That was Hiram Revels in 1873. And this Mississippi plan spread throughout the South. South Carolina, which I love. And by the way, Joe agreed that if I did that this lecture, he was going to buy me a house in Buford. There's a house I've been looking at for a couple years down in Buford that Robert Smalls used to own. And I think it'd be fitting for the Alphonse Fletcher University professor at Harvard to be writing about uh, writing about reconstruction in the new museum. <laughs> if I had a winter place down there. But, oh, I forgot where I was. <laughs> South Carolina in 1895, Louisiana in 1898. You want to know how effective this was, ladies and gentlemen? In 1898, 
there were 130,000 black men registered to vote in the state of Louisiana. After they passed their state constitutional convention in 1898, by 1904, that number, 130,000, had been reduced precisely to 1,342. Think about that. That's how devastatingly effective the rollback to Reconstruction was. And then there's one more thing, which was the narrative. The narrative. Birth of a Nation, the most racist film perhaps ever made, is not about the Civil War. We all think it's about the Civil War. It's not. It's about Reconstruction, and it focuses on the South Carolina majority black legislature. They become the metaphor, the trope for incompetence, ignorance, um, lust. There's one moment in the film where all the black men are cheering. Remember, it's a silent film. And they had just passed the miscegenation law, making it legal for black men to marry white women. And that's where the invention of of the trope of Gus the Rapist. You ever wonder why uh, other scholars have pointed this out? You can read about slavery. You can read Planner's Diaries all day long. There's not stories about black men raping white women. All the time, all those Confederates are away. The black slaves that are back on the planting, they're not stories about rape. This whole thing about rape was invented as part of the narrative that black men wanted to rape white women or had a propensity to want to rape white women. That's a post-Civil War conceit. And it's part of the um, pernicious lies told about um, black men. So if you look at, if you go back and look at uh, Birth of a Nation, and I actually made my Harvard English Department graduate class, it's three hours long. They go, why do we got to watch this? And I go, you got to watch. And we did, took two whole classes and we watched the whole thing. It makes you want to vomit. But um, remember, uh, the main action is Gus the rapist. He was trying to rape this white woman and she leaps to her death rather than to submit uh, to protect, you know, the nobility of womanhood. And um, that whole propaganda effort was um, coterminous with the erection of those Confederate monuments. But in a way, it was much more pernicious. The monuments were just the granite version of the narrative. But the the, um, historian general of the UDC, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, was a woman named Mildred Lewis Rutherford. And I wish I could have met old Mildred because she was one smart, she was a smart cookie. She published a book called The Measuring Rod. Joe, I made my students read this book. It's just a pamphlet. It's got 20 principles. And she sent it out to libraries, to professors. And they, before they decided whether they were going to buy a book about the Civil War or use it in their classroom, she wanted them to measure the theory, the theses of that book against her 20 principles. That's why it's called the measuring rod. And I'm going to quote just three of her 20 principles. (laughs) Reject the book, good old Mildred says. It says the South fought the Civil War to hold her slaves. (laughs) Reject the book that speaks of the slaveholder of the South as cruel and unjust. And finally, this is the best one. Reject the book that glorifies Abraham Lincoln. Mildred's common core was the lost cause. And that was cold, man. 
And so by the time the last Reconstruction congressman um, left um, Congress in 1901, the narrative was in place. And then uh, Professor Dunning, William Dunning at Columbia, had all these graduate students, and they wrote official academic histories about Reconstruction, saying that it was the worst moment in the history of the idea of democracy. And I'm going to tell you how bad it was, <clears throat> because I dug up this passage for you, Joe. Let me find it. It's from Thomas Dixon. Now, Thomas Dixon was also, um, he was a racist novelist, and he wrote The Klansman, which is the basis for Birth of a Nation. But he wrote another book before, in 1902, called The Leopard Spots. And everybody knows where that comes from. Esau, you can't change, a leopard can't change a spot. It's also in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. This is what he said. I want you to listen to this. Quote, simply because so long as the Negro is here. No, no, I'm going to read you the two paragraphs. It seemed a joke sometimes, as he thought of it, a huge preposterous joke. This actual attempt to reverse the order of nature, turn society upside down, and make a thick-lipped, flat-nosed Negro, but yesterday taken from the jungle, the ruler of the proudest and strongest race of men evolved in 2,000 years of history. Yet when he remembered the fierce passions in the hearts of the demagogues who were experimenting with this social dynamic, it was a joke that took on a hellish, sinister meaning. Paragraph two. Simply because so long as a Negro is here with a ballot in his hands, he is a menace to civilization. The Republican Party placed him here. The name Republican will stink in the South for a century. Not because they beat us in war, but because two years after, remember, the summer of 1867, two years after the war, in profound peace, they inaugurated the second war on the unarmed people of the South. Their attempt to establish with the bayonet and African barbarism on the ruins of Southern society was a conspiracy against human progress. It was the blackest crime of the 19th century. Not the fact that 750,000 men died in the Civil War, but giving black men the right to vote. And so how did the Civil Rights Movement culminate? on Pettus Bridge with John Lewis and his, his friends, men and women, getting beaten that day. Why? Over voting rights. It took all those years. It took the Voting Rights Act to get the right to vote back. And for Stacey Abrams, first of all, if I were Joe Biden, I'd go to a black church every Sunday and thank Jesus. Push <laughs> that magic black button, man. If everybody forget. Joe Biden was a walking dead when he came out of New Hampshire. When he came into South Carolina, someone said the press wasn't even gathered around him. Bernie was the man. Bernie had the momentum, remember? Jim Clyburn said, Jesus spoke to me and Joe Biden going to be president. <laughs> and it happened. Clyburn delivered South Carolina. Stacey Abrams delivered Georgia. She turned Georgia. And what has happened? Since that election, the Republicans have invented about 2,000 <laughs> recommendations trying to repress the black vote, trying to suppress the black vote all over again. So everybody knows 
it, it's the power is in the ballot, and you could see it graphically with the rise and fall of Reconstruction. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. My jokes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, uh, Skip Gates has been an ardent supporter of our International African American Museum from the early days of, of the idea, and now it's under construction and it will open in uh, July of next year. And uh, Skip, what do you articulate the significance of our building this museum on the site that was once Gadsden's Wharf, the, where more enslaved Africans were brought than any other place in our country? Yeah, um, according to the last estimate that I looked at, 48% of all of our African ancestors came to the United States through the Port of Charleston. That's amazing. So metaphorically, Charleston is our Ellis Island. Uh, that's incredible. <clears throat> there were only 388,000 Africans brought to North America directly from uh, Africa. I mean, that's a lot. Um, and another 42,000 came in the intra-American slave trade. So what's that? Add 388,000 and 42,000. That's all the Africans who came. Why do I say that's all? Because Haiti, which was called Saint-Domingue until the Haitian Revolution, got 772,000. Cuba got 950,000 Africans, most of them after 1808, when the slave trade became illegal in the United States. One of the reasons John C. Calhoun was so uh, especially uh, pernicious is that he wanted, not only did he want slavery to continue, he wanted to reopen the slave trade. <laughs> that, that was pretty extreme, even for apologists for slavery. Jamaica got 1 million Africans. 680,000 landed on the island of Barbados. Barbados is the biggest postage stamp compared to the United States. And you ready for this, ladies and gentlemen? Brazil, 5 million Africans. 5 million Africans. But half of the 48%, virtually half of those 388,000 Africans came directly from Africa, came through Charleston. So that's the first reason that um, a museum, a proper African-American museum, should be located in Charleston. The second reason is because Charleston was ground zero for reconstruction. So the museum has got to be in part, you know, there's a reconstruction museum in Beaufort, and, you know, there, because of Robert Smalls, that's where his house was. That was whose house I was alluding to, and Joe's going by for me. Uh, <laughs> um, you... you we have to bring, I'm on Joe's board in some kind of exploited exploit, exploited capacity or other. <laughs> and But when we get to programming, <coughs> excuse me, it's dry in here. When we get to programming, programming about reconstruction has got to be part of it, but the slave trade, slavery in South Carolina, black rice, as it was called, um, all that's got to be part of the museum. So it's fact enough that the landing ground for virtually half of the imported Africans who were brought here in chains came through Charleston. That's fact enough alone 
for there to be a museum created. But Charleston has so much more going for it um, because of the history of Reconstruction, the rollback to Reconstruction. Charleston, South Carolina is a very complicated place. I happen to like it. I love going to Charleston. I haven't bothered to go to the museum, to the Confederacy. I hope you all forgive me and understand. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? Every time I'm there, Joe, and I drive past that, and that line is long. I mean, before COVID, I haven't been down in Charleston. Uh, You know, people are fascinated by the Confederacy, and I don't blame them. You know, someone made a joke about I'm the only black man because of my uh, TV show, Finding Your Roots. I'm the only black man that makes white people feel better about owning slaves. You know, I'm trying to make them not feel guilty. <laughs> you know, but I don't believe in, um, I don't believe the guilt is heritable. Just because your great-great-grandfather owned slaves doesn't make you a racist. That doesn't mean you're not complicit in that. You know, you don't have to go around um, um, punishing, you're splagellating yourself. So when I reveal in Finding Roots that somebody's ancestor owned slaves or fought for the Confederacy, I'm just, I present that in a matter of fact way. I don't think less of them. And I don't feel that they should think lesser of themselves or their It's It's your blood kin. You're not responsible. I don't want to be responsible for everything in my family. <laughs> I don't want to be responsible for what my cousins do, let alone what dead people did. <laughs> so... I think that that's very important, but it's very complicated. You know, slavery was an evil thing. Um, You know, it was against the rights of um, humanity. And we have to construct a narrative that allows for the complexity of our history. And I'm without name calling. And I want our museum, which is Joe's um, brainchild. You know, it will be your legacy. and I'm glad that you asked me to, uh, to be part of it. But I want that complex story to be told well, um, through the museum. Uh, it, and, and it has to be, the whole story has to be told. And one of the things that uh, the Lost Cause did was create a fiction. The whole, all was fiction about African-American experiences, including the fiction that it really wasn't hard being uh, on a plantation. You know, they took yeah. you, you got Dr. Eden, everybody's very nice, and you know, and all of that. So it, right. the museum is is going to, in a granular fashion, present the truth about the experience of enslaved Africans in, in South Carolina, in Charleston, in the South, in the harshness. You know, uh, the, what made Charleston so wealthy was rice. Rice. Uh, the, the rice was were planted in marshes, too muddy for animals to work. So the, the rice plantations, the rice fields were created by enslaved Africans in mud, on their hands and on their knees. All day long. All day long that made, made millions. And so it's, that's, that's just part of the, the, the fiction. Of, of African-American history that was told through the, the lens of the lost cause. And so we're it's, we're going to be very careful and honest about it. And I think it also is in, inspiring. It's heartbreaking, just like the, the workhouse here. If someone enslaved African misbehaved, they thought they'd take them to the workhouse and get beat up. So all of those stories have to be told 
because it's a truth. And then in doing so, to, to honor those enslaved Africans who were brought here and, and what they did and the sacrifices they made and the harshness of their lives. And uh, so that will be part, it will be, it will be comprehensive uh, and mm -hmm. moving. And by the way, Jonathan Green is on our board. Uh, oh, good. Yeah, and he lives, he, lives, he lives in Charleston now. Well, you tell him I'm making him rich because I've done a thousand Zoom, Zoom presentations with that painting behind me. You know what? My daughter, I think, um, uh, I see Kitty smiling there. My daughter, Kitty, picked uh, that we moved to, I was a professor at Cornell. That's where I got tenure. And then Duke made me an offer. And I didn't know if I wanted to live in the South. My first wife was white. My second wife's Cuban. She's a Cuban citizen. And uh, my first wife's a white American. And we had two little girls. And they talk about the news side, the old side. You know, I was raised with George Wallace and Orville Faubus in my head. You know, so I didn't know if I wanted to go, <laughs> I'd go south. So I decided to go down to the National Humanities Center on sabbatical for a semester. I'd researched Triangle Park, which is, you know, right near Chapel Hill and Raleigh and Durham, that little area. It's very liberal. And um, the first weekend we were there, you know how disorienting it is when you move. And they were nine and seven, my daughters. And they're wondering, you know, what the hell are you uprooting us out of school and bringing us down here for? And it was January of um, uh, 1990, I guess. You can look it up, 89 or 90. And the Raleigh paper said that a young black artist named Jonathan Green was having an opening. And I'd never heard of him. And I've been collecting art since I was 19. I bought my first four piece of African art in Africa, in Tanzania, when I was 19 years old. And I was a student at Yale, living in Tanzania for a year on a Yale program, working in an Anglican mission hospital, because I was pre-med. You know, all smart little black boys and girls when I was growing up were raised to be doctors. From my mother in heaven, the father, son, the Holy Ghost, and a medical doctor. <laughs> and so... I was there working in this uh, hospital. So anyway, I've been collecting art since I was 19. So I said, okay, there's a new black artist I never heard of. And on that Sunday, we went to the opening. And I told my daughters, because I wanted them to start collecting. It's never too soon. And I said, we're going to this exhibition. You can pick any painting you want. I'll buy it. And... Um, and I'll buy it, you know. And so my older daughter, Maggie, at the age of nine, picked that painting. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and my younger daughter picked one just as beautiful that's in our living room. You know, I led them to believe, Joe, that it would be the, these paintings would be theirs, but maybe uh, when I'm dead, <laughs> <laughs> well, they're going to have to wait. <laughs> we, we, will, we will tell Jonathan that story at our next museum board meeting. And Kitty Robinson, who you saw, is right here. She remind me. And Good. That. Do me a favor. Show him a, send him a tape so he can just look at it and see this painting. <laughs> okay. so, you know, Joe, I'm sorry, but I think it's 329 and I got to bail at 330. Want to ask me one more question or? Let's see. Uh, Kelly, do you have a question? A short question for Professor Gates? Just, just a, a quick one. Yeah, if we could get in a student question. I uh, was asking maybe what has been your most surprising or significant uh, discovery from the Finding Your Roots work 
if you could share a quick story with us. Sure. Um, well, that's a good question. I thank everybody for watching Finding Your Roots. I love doing that show. And it's um, the number one show on PBS. I'm very happy about that. And season seven is airing. It's rare for um, a multiple years series to grow in its audience. And I'm, I'm very, I'm very pleased about that. In fact, I just came, I'm fully vaccinated before I tell you this, I'm fully vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And I just came back from LA on Saturday um, where we filmed five new guests under strict COVID protocols mm -hmm. um, for finding your roots. Uh, the table where I sit with the guests and um, share the stories that we found used to be three feet in diameter, now it's six feet in diameter. <laughs> it's got the COVID table. But um, I don't know. I like telling the story of Oprah's uh, great-great-grandfather, Constantine Winfrey, because um, in 1870, um, he's living in Atala County, Mississippi, and he's uh, living next door to a white man named Absalom Winfrey. And I think he's 28 years old. And when we go back to the 1860 census, and we look in, Absalom Winfrey's slave schedule, he owns an 18-year-old black male servant. So you can't be sure, but you don't exactly have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out that that's probably Constantine Winfrey. And because um, he took his name from Absalom Winfrey, and he's exactly 10 years older in 1870 than he was in 1860. For those of you who don't know, uh, black people were, only free black people were listed by name in the federal census. There are a few counties where that's an exception, maybe half a dozen in 1850 and 1860, but only about half a dozen in all other county, in every other county in the United States. An enslaved person was listed only by age, by color, being black or mulatto, and by gender. That's it. Just anonymous hash marks, along with other property, right? Um, so 1876, Constantine Winfrey walks up to a white man named John Watson and said, you know those 80 acres you own? Nice bottom land with little gentle rolling hills, a little stream through it. John Watson says, yep. He said, well, I'd like to buy them from you. I don't have any money, but I'll give you 2,000 bales of hay in a specified time. I can't remember right now what the contract said. And John Watson must have thought Constantine was a fool. Because John Watson said, if you are one ounce under 2,000 bales of cotton, you know, or if you have 1,999 bales, I get to keep all the bales and you lose. You get nothing. Constantine said, cool. And we know he was successful because I handed Oprah the deed that uh, <laughs> John Watson signed to transfer those 80 acres over to her great-great-grandfather. And Constantine, who was illiterate in 1870, signed his name in 1880. So somehow, picking all that cotton, brother learned to read and write. <laughs> Two years later, he goes back to Watson, I think it was Watson, and buys 250 uh, more, no, buys another adjacent 80 acres for $250 in cash. That's amazing. So you want to know why Oprah's Oprah? Because <laughs> Constantine Winfrey's her great-great-great-grandfather. I love that story. You know, I used to be able to memorize all the stories that we found, but now we've had uh, well over 200 guests, and I can't do that anymore. Um, but Oprah was in the first season, and there's some stories that, that stick out. I particularly like 
doing uh, stories of Eastern European uh, Jews from the Pale of Settlement. Uh, Joe, I used to think, when I invented the series, and I only did black people, it was called African American Lives 1 in 2006, African American Lives 2 in 2008. I did Maya, uh, Angelou, <clears throat> 2008, Morgan Freeman. Anybody plays God and the president, you got to do his <laughs> <laughs> Um And it was so popular, this Russian Jewish lady, this lady wrote me and said, I'm of Russian Jewish ancestry. I've always admired you, but you're a big fat racist because you only do black people. <laughs> and I looked at that. I was so shocked. It had never occurred to me that I could trace the ancestry of white people or Asian people or anybody else. Black studies, African and African-American studies, that's my brand. You know, that's what I'm trained to do. And so I tell you a funny story. See, Joe gets me telling lies. That's what black people call it, sitting around drinking that Pappy Van Winkle and swapping lies. So I called a black woman. Coca-Cola was my sponsor at that time. And the president of the Coke Foundation is a black woman named, was a black woman named Ingrid Saunders Jones. She's still alive. She's no longer with Coke. And I called her. I was holding that lady's letter. And I said, Ingrid, this Jewish lady just wrote me said, I'm a racist. She goes, what? And then she got up. And I was on the cell phone. And so was she. And I said, well, Ingrid, what do I do? And then I thought the lion had gone dead. And I kept saying her name, Ingrid, 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 are you there? Unbeknownst to me, she had been sitting with all these white executives in this conference room. And she got up and walked all the way down the corridor, went in this room where nobody could hear this conversation. And just as I was about to hang up, I go, Ingrid. And she goes, skip, skip, stop I'm shouting. I'm here, I'm here. I didn't want anybody to hear. I said, well, Ingrid, what am I supposed to do? This Jewish lady said, we should be doing Jewish people and Asian people and everybody else. And she said, well, I only got one thing to say. I go, what? She goes, there's a lot more white people drinking Coca-Cola than black people. <laughs> <laughs> I took that as a yes. <laughs> and so we changed the brand and we started doing everything. So to make a long story short, when I began the series, I thought only black people couldn't do their ancestry. But it's as hard to do Eastern European Jewry as it is to do black people. Because in 1791, Catherine the Great decided that essentially all the Jews in the Russian Empire should be confined to the Pale of Settlement, which is where the phrase beyond the pale comes from, the pale, P-A-L-E, of settlement. And there were 5 million Jewish people uh, almost confined to the Pale of Settlement. They weren't the majority of people there, but the majority of Jews in the Russian Empire lived in the Pale of Settlement. Special taxes, they couldn't own farming land, um, all kind of, they had to pay taxes on candles. You know, how cold can you get? Who uses candles in the religious ceremony, right? I mean, just the pernicious forms of anti-Semitism. And um, I just did, um, um, oh man, he's my buddy from Martha's Vineyard. You know, Monk, somebody help me. Who plays Monk? Um, you know, and he's on um, The Amazing Miss Amazing. Um Somebody put it in the chat or just go on mute and tell me. Tony Shalhoub. Tony Shalhoub. Yes. Tony Shalhoub is a friend of mine, and I just did him. He'll be in the next season. And I learned a lot about the Armenian Genocide. Now, I always signed the petitions, and the Armenian Genocide's 1815. But Tony's family, in a kind of warm-up, his ancestor was killed horribly in 1895 when I believe 50,000 Armenians were 
tortured and killed by the Turkey, by the Ottoman Empire, which is the, the Turks, of course. Um, so I learn about historical periods and events by tracing ancestry. And Joe, I think it's a brilliant teaching tool because imagine for me, uh, you know, I was a good student. I memorized the names of battles and everything. So, but I'm not speaking autobiographically, but imagine how much more interesting the American Revolution would have been to me if I'd known that a free black man who, whose blood I inherited, whose DNA I inherited, actually um, <clears throat> mustered into the Continental Army on Christmas Day, 1778, was mustered out in April 1784. Man, I'd have been writing reports on that, brother, my whole life. <laughs> what we're able to do is tell American history in a much uh, vibrant way by you looking over the shoulder of Tony Shalhoub, watching him cry when I tell him that his ancestor was actually crucified upside down. This is true. Crucified, crucified wow. like Jesus, upside down in 1895. So, um, anyway, that's why I do it. I love it. I don't get tired of it. And, um, Somebody amazing just, oh, the other night, two Saturdays ago, I was minding my own business, sitting here in my kitchen, watching uh, Last Tango in Halifax with my wife. My computer went ding. And Joe, I looked at it, it was Carol Burnett's agent asking if she could be <laughs> in the city. I almost jumped through the computer. <laughs> I was like, yes, of course it could be. <laughs> anyway, I love you, Joe. Skip, you're wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. Be sure to check out our Q&A podcast. This week, our guest is author Martin Dugard, whose new book, Taking Paris, talks about Paris during the time of the German occupation and liberation of the city by U.S. and French forces in August 1944. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts and on the new C-SPAN Now app.